Coming up on the Jan Broberg Show. The most beneficial thing I ever heard a counselor say um, is, you know, you're going to process this now. And then 10 years from now, something new is going to come up and you're going to process it again. And 10 years after that, you're going to process something again in a different way. And and that's the healing journey, right? Yeah. So that's just kind of like brief background of why I'm here and why I'm passionate about um, talking about my story and helping other survivors talk about theirs as well. Hey, everybody. I want to talk to you a little bit more about our upcoming podcast. On the show, we are not afraid to talk about the difficult conversations around child abuse and what we can do to make a change and how we can heal so we aren't living a life based in the past from our trauma, but we are thriving in the present. We want everyone to thrive. So we invite real everyday people to share their stories We talk with special guests and experts who can give us insights, tips, and advice. We also release bonus content for our Patreon subscribers in the form of roundtables where we discuss a current topic in the news. We laugh a lot, but we also get into some really deep conversations. This show is not for children, and there may be language to which some are sensitive. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Jam Broberg Show. I am so delighted to be sitting here with Anna Kate Marsh. She is an associate, a friend of another friend who has friends with my daughter and another friend in another life. And (laughs) it just seems like we're one big circle. Um, When it comes to the subject matter, we all have the same heart for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, This is a really unique situation because Anna Kate Marsh is not only a child life specialist, but she's also a mental health counselor. And she also, number three with this triple play, is she has her own story that she brings to us today as well of her own child trauma and abuse. And so I just want to thank her so much for her open heart, her her many, many ways that she has now gone into being actually somebody who is standing for others, but is willing to still share her own story with us today. Welcome, Anna-Kate. Thank you so much, Jen, for um, having me here. I just am so appreciative to have all these connections in this world that's, you know, we have so many friends, like you said, that are so willing to work with this population of people and share their stories so that other people can find healing too along the way. Yeah, and that's really the beautiful part of what I've been doing in this last week. I opened, uh, or it's been open for a little while, just um, the uh, our Thrivivors, our online community, and the response with people coming into that community and how they're sharing with each other. And they already come there knowing that, you know, everybody there has a story, but we have a lot of empathy and yeah. empathetic sharing and and listening going on and good just advice. But the main thing people are are really feeling is this is a safe place. I can be here on my worst day or mm-hmm. I can share a small triumph or we call them thrive umps. <laughs> share your thrive ump. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> in our Thrivivors community. It's pretty cute, isn't it? I like it too. And it and people I love are. That. That's adorable. Yeah, thanks. And I just think that that's what really podcasting with um, survivors who have 
have overcome a lot in their life and then knowing that it's still a lifelong journey. And that's why we continue Mm. to heal and to grab hold of people's hands on the healing path. And sometimes we grab their hand when we need them to help us take one more step or to help us not fall off the ledge or the cliff or jump off the ledge or the cliff. And we also need to extend our hand uh, when somebody else is having that day or that moment. Um, so it really is an amazing thing to to find someone like you that has their own story and is willing to share that and then to also give us some insights about what you are doing in your professional life, why you chose that uh, profession, and some of the things that might help us as we move forward in our own healing journey. So I want to just jump Absolutely. in. Do you mind if we just jump in? (laughs) And if I were just to say, if you're able to tell me a few things that you feel comfortable sharing from your childhood, um, where do you want to start? Yeah, um, I think that I had a pretty typical, like I I had a a lot of good a lovely childhood, to be honest. I'm in the middle of seven. Um, lots of um, good connections with my siblings, and I'm very close with my family still today. Um, although I'm from Tennessee, so I'm a little far, far away from home in Utah, and it's uh, difficult to connect with everybody now that we're all adults and spread out. But um, I had a close family member who I was sexually abused by for four years in from the time I was eight to twelve, and that was. I think now I've learned in my professional life and as I get older that it's just so easy to hide and keep secrets. And I think I just held on to that secret for so long because I didn't know what to do and didn't know how to talk about it. It's just so much confusion wrapped up in that kind of experience and pain. And so um, that went on for quite a long time. But I the reason I appreciate my family so much is because when my parents did find out, they did everything right. That's the way I like to phrase it is they got me the support that I needed, went through the court system to help get justice for me and and support me and in all of that process. And I've experienced a lot of healing because of the way that they, my parents and also my family has come around me and given me the love and support I need to continue on. I think the most, um, the most beneficial thing I ever heard a counselor say um, is, you know, you're going to process this now. And then 10 years from now, something new is going to come up and you're going to process it again. And 10 years after that, you're going to process something again in a different way. And and that's the healing journey, right? Yeah. So that's just kind of like brief background of why I'm here and why I'm passionate about um, talking about my story and helping other survivors talk about theirs as well. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I think when we have a really like a successful moment in our lives. For example, I, after 30 years of telling my story and talking about what happened, and then my family members came along to say, we're willing to talk about what we Mm -hmm. missed and the mistakes we made because we were groomed and we're going to be an open book. And we all decided to do that. And that's been an amazing experience for us as a family. We've become closer because of it. And we've all been able to heal in different ways. But I have found, like you said, oh, about every, you know, not even 10 years, about every two years I have to deal with, yeah. you know, it, it's it like up. <laughs> stuff comes up. And, and in fact, even in daily life, things will come up, even though I have worked 
so hard and so long on healing. I've had wonderful therapists along the way, and I've I've been able to have other you know professional services um, throughout my life. But I've also done a lot of self help. I've read a lot of books. I've listened to a lot of Oprah and Dr. Phil, and you know various things that have actually been very beneficial. Hearing other people's stories somehow, especially when we almost always relate to them, it gives us a clue to ourselves. So when we hear your story and we go, oh, and now she's a child life specialist and now she's an actual mental health counselor. Wow. How did you decide? Obviously, it had something to do with what you went through. But, you know, even even so, how did you actually decide to choose this path? Because I do think that if we think it's going to be a one and done, like I'm going to heal today and then that's it, we're going to be really disappointed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, totally. All the why time. we need community, right? It's why we mm-hmm. need each other. And that's what I'm loving about this community that we've just launched and the response there. And uh, one of your good um cohorts has already done a special event on our community. And uh, that is, uh, where did you meet Alyssa Dameron? Sorry, I asked you two questions all at once. I should stop doing that. (laughs) No, that's okay. Alyssa Dameron, we work at Primary Children's Hospital together. She's a social worker and she um, supervises some of my work and is just further along in her career than I am. And she is incredible and just generally genuinely, sorry, I can't talk today, has supported me in, in getting into my career and professional life and um, is a few steps ahead of me in that. So uh-huh. she's been a great mentor and friend. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, she's, you know, been able to just share with us some some wonderful thoughts and in, in, in a presentation type of way. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't do any professional counseling at the community, but mm-hmm. we certainly are trying to expose great, um, lessons and, you know, presentations, as well as what we've all learned through, you know, the, 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 the life learning. It's not called the hard knocks of life. And so I have a lot of respect for Alyssa and her commitment to, to, to this cause, to this uh, messaging where, where, um, you know, community and, and the coming together of those who have actually suffered the most is actually incredibly beneficial. And she just really went into that in one of the events she did recently. And I just loved it about, you know, there is a science behind healing. And without deep connection, you actually cannot heal. And so you can't do it. Yeah, You must find your tribe. And so that's what I've loved about this community. Thriveivers is our name. And we really are survivors who want to thrive and we come together with our loved ones and our, you know, family members. Like you said, you your parents and your family did everything right. That's how I feel when I finally mm-hmm. told and when I finally started to talk. They listened. They didn't defend themselves. They didn't try to fix me. They did did what I thought was perfect. They just listened. And then they were there to do whatever I was ready to do next. And so um, we are lucky for that reason. Um, now, the mm-hmm. justice system, that's a different thing. You actually yeah. got your your family actually went through that process and it worked. Did it work? Was your perpetrator? Tell me well, how. Well, it so it's interesting because my I would say my story is unique in that way um, because um, so 
I part of the reason the question you asked earlier is why did I get into this field? And part of it is because I went to a child advocacy center. So um, what happens, I think nowadays, and I, I don't know much about the past because this happened, I guess this was like 10 years ago. And um, thankfully, the justice system has slowly been catching up a little bit at a time um, to help victims, especially children of abuse. Um, I've seen a lot of that growth in my lifetime. And so um, when all this came out, I mean, it was actually like 15 years ago. I forget how old I am. Um, but I my I went to a children's justice center and I had such an incredible experience um, of them asking me my story. I mean, it was terrifying. I remember the details of that day so clearly of going and, and sharing my story in a forensic interview. Um, they have forensic interviewers who are trained to talk to children about these things. And, um, they gave me this bear with these teddy bears on a wall afterwards. And I got to pick out a teddy bear that I actually still have to this day. It is a very, it is a comforting item that I keep with me. Um, and, they just cared for me really well. And I remember when I was 15 coming home and telling my parents, I want to work at a child advocacy center one day. I want to work with child abuse. So that's kind of how that came out. I was 12 when I went and had my own interview. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of uh, with my perpetrator, I think the thing that's unique about my story is I actually have had uh, I've had the opportunity to, to reconcile the perpetrator that I had my was a family member who was also a child. So we were two ish years apart and no justification for any thing that happened. But I do think there was a lot of complex things going on in that person's life as well as mine. And they went through the court system, went to jail for a little while, went through a lot of therapy, um, a lot of psychological testing even. um, And they were also a minor. Um, But I think that in my case, the court system actually helped them get the healing that they needed and me get the healing that I needed. And we have had reconciliation between us. Um, Not to say that um, that heals all wounds and there are no wounds left there between us um, or that I have lots of interaction with this person, but um, everyone in my family is very aware. We do not have secrets. We don't hide things anymore. We're very open. We talk about stuff. And so um, I am very thankful in that aspect of my story that I actually got to see the healing of this person who could have turned out really like a terrible person, but because they got help early on in their adolescent years, they were able to kind of overcome their own trauma that caused them to be, um, in many ways, sexually dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, and have those dysfunctional behaviors. And I think our society, unfortunately, just doesn't talk about these things enough. We don't talk about sex and sexuality and, um, what it means to be a sexual person. And so you get lots of kids growing up in environments where they're just really confused and, um, there are evil people in the world, but sometimes there's so much confusion wrapped up in certain scenarios too. So my story, I think is a little different in that. I don't think, uh, I was like groomed by someone who is an adult or particularly perpetrated on by someone who was intentionally trying to harm me. Um, there was a little bit more confusion along the way for me and for that other person. That's really remarkable to hear that perspective because I know that Oftentimes, if someone is, you know, sexualized themselves, then they will perpetrate or, you know, on someone else. But it's just because of what's happened to them, especially when they're underage, they're children or tweens or teenagers Mm -hmm. even. And so to hear that you were able to go through that entire process and reconcile 
And hopefully that 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 person got the help they need so that they aren't continuing that pattern, you know, into their adult life. That's remarkable. I really love hearing that. And um so you're you kind of insinuated that maybe something had happened to that person yeah. which made the difference. I hope that the person who, if it was an adult that perpetrated that person, that's the person that belongs behind bars. Right. I mean, I hope so too. And that's part of the story that I may just never know. Right. Um, it's it's sad because we know, because I work in the child abuse world, that's, I work in a child abuse clinic um, now, and this is what I've always dreamed of doing. We see this all the time as peer on peer abuse. This has actually mm-hmm. become a lot more common, which is unfortunate because um, honestly, kids are so much, there's so much more opportunity for them to be exposed to pornography, which creates really dysfunctional thinking in children because they don't know how to process that kind of image or information. And then they try and act these things out with their peers and it is abuse and it, it, but it's a very complicated kind of abuse. It's like, did somebody intentionally intend to harm one another, these peer relationships, or were they just very confused and curious and they did something wrong? And so with peer-on-peer child abuse, it gets very messy. Um, and, And so what we try to do in the justice system with those cases is we try and get help for both children so that they can move forward and not become perpetrators in their adult life, right? That's the hope is like we get you help early and often, and then you can move forward and be a healthy human, but that doesn't always happen. So, right. So what, what kind of a, what would the process be like if you were a parent or a, or a loved one that, that realizes something is wrong here, these two are always off on their own or, well, Mm -hmm. let me ask you a different question. To, and then you can explain that if if there's an answer. Yeah. But did you did you actually come forward and eventually just tell? Because of course there were four years that you weren't telling, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you were scared, probably confused, probably all those things. But did you actually take the first step, or was it a parent or someone that came to you and said something's wrong, sweetheart? You need to talk to me. Tell me how that happened, and then. Yeah how that process, like if a parent or someone that's concerned thought something was going on, where would they call? How do you find like where you work or, or a national hotline or something? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually disclosed to a friend. So I 12 years old, I was at a sleepover hanging out with a couple of my girlfriends and I just spontaneously told them, I think I had gotten to a point where I had had enough and I was just, I mean, scared really. And I told my two friends and one of my friends, her mom actually happened to be a social worker. So what happened is she doesn't know what to do with the information I just gave her. So she calls her mom naturally and tells her mom what I said. And then she's a social worker, which in um, most states now, I I think mandated reporting is um, like everyone's a mandated reporter. But at the time, um, I think only certain people were mandated reporters, but social workers are one of that, that they are mandated to report abuse. And so she heard this from her daughter and called, she called the police and let them know. And the police showed up at my house that night. And it was, I think, pretty shocking for my whole family. But them knocking at our door and saying, you know, like, we're going to have to ask you some questions about this. I went that same night to get a medical exam. So the job that I do now is I, as a child life specialist, I help prepare and um, help children cope with the medical examination following sexual assault. Mm. So my whole job is to basically teach them about like, hey, this is 
you've already had something terrible happen to you, um, but we need to make sure that your body is healthy and safe and that you don't have any injuries that we might need to take care of. This is how we do that. So I prepare them for those exams and then give them coping skills to, to help get through that. And I stay with them. Um, sometimes I'm the coping tool. It's my voice. It's my um, presence with them that's a coping tool. Sometimes it's something else, whether that for a young child might be a toy or a teenager might be music. Um, and so I help them figure that out, but I didn't have that. So as a 12-year-old, like 12-year-old me has this memory going to get my medical exam and I was alone. I don't even think they let my mom be in the room. My mom and I have had some conversations about this later in my life, in my adult years, and she remembers not being able to go back with me. So I was alone in this room with a strange doctor giving me a medical exam, which we would never do to a child now. Like this was 15 years ago, but, um, I would, that would be like absolutely not okay in the world that I work in. And so it's interesting to look back on that and realize like that was very overwhelming for my 12 year old self. And then a few days later is when I went to the uh, the children's advocacy center in Memphis, Tennessee. And that's when I, Um, had that experience that I talked about earlier. Um, So in terms of how other people can report, honestly, like you can report anonymously to DCFS. That would be the best way. If if anyone's worried about their information being used or brought up, anonymous reports are very helpful. And the thing I always tell people is I think DCFS or some states call it CPS, Child Protective Services, has this negative rap. People think that CPS and DCFS are just trying to come into homes and take children away, but that's actually not true, especially in the state of Utah. They have laws to keep families together. The state of Utah does not want to take your children out of the home. They want to keep families together. And so really, they're just trying to make sure that the environment for a child is safe. And so um, I think that that is helpful when I talk to people to let them know, hey, like DCFS is actually trying to do a good job to keep families together. So don't be afraid to report something, even if you just have a suspicion, because they'll show up and they'll ask some questions. And, you know, if there aren't any concerns, they close the case. But if there are concerns, they can help. So yeah. that would be my advice to people. So that really brings up a couple of other um, interesting questions. So when you you call the Department of Child and Family Services or Child Protective Services, depending on what state and what the things that are set yeah. up in your state are, would you, as an, if you wanted to remain anonymous, are you giving the name of the child or who you think is the perpetrator? I mean, can you just kind of say whatever you want? Because I think a lot of times people don't realize that even just reporting something um, can be like, saving someone's life, even if you haven't really seen something, even though you didn't see it. Like I had a police officer one time at an event that I was speaking at, at a, I think it was a chamber of commerce meeting somewhere. And he stood up with his partner. They were both there. It was a, it was a male female partnership and they both um, kind of made different comments. And they said, we, we will check out any allegation of abuse in our police department, that is at the top of our list, not the bottom. And so we that's our first thing is to just go to where the person says they think something's happening and something's off. And then we make reports. And the the thing about that is, is even if we don't find anything, because obviously people hide, right? They're not, mm-hmm. oh yes, by the way, I did. I actually was raping this child. They don't say that, right? But right. they go there, they make a report, and then there's something that's in a file. So then if somebody across town also goes, I got a funny feeling or I saw this person do something off, 
Now there's two things in that file or in that report or, or that file that makes a little case all of a sudden start to formulate like somebody's hiding, something's something's mm-hmm. up, right? Yeah, true? absolutely. I think that um, the case will close, but they always have that file, right? And so no matter if you just have an inkling and you are able to tell DCFS, honestly, they don't even push for information. Like if you only have the child's name and who you think might be hurting them, like they'll ask you things like, do you know their address? What's their parent's name? What's their contact information? But if you just say, you know, I don't know, that's all the information I have. I mean, the government has records of people and so they will figure it out. They just want to be able to know like, oh, you have an inkling. Okay. And if that's all the information you give them, then they will use that to just go check in, see what's going on. And if nothing's wrong, well, at least you did your due diligence to, you know, check in on something that could have been wrong. Yeah, that's amazing. And when you're preparing a child to have that examination or whatever is happening, um, I often think, you know, when I look at, you know, sometimes they do a really good job on some of these crime shows that you watch on TV Mm -hmm. and a rape victim. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what they have to go through, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the things they've Mm -hmm. already been traumatized. And then, you know, but you want to get the evidence so that you can have a a way to put the perpetrator in jail. But but according to another friend who's a detective, um, was a detective, now he teaches around the country, he said that the average um, timeline for a woman or a girl or, uh, you know, to report something is about seven years after the fact. And that's if they report seven years or longer. And for men is like 21 years or longer is the average amount of time it takes for someone to actually decide, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to tell, and I'm going to report mm-hmm. what happened. And so then you have the statute of limitations, which should be eradicated. You have all these other things, right? So, yeah, it's very annoying. Legal hoops that you have to jump through, gosh. Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So when you prepare these the children for those those things, are there certain themes or is there anything that we can do as, as um, concerned citizens, parents, aunts, you know, uncles, to... Keep that open dialogue. Like you talked about that, you know, your parents at that, they created this open dialogue after Mm -hmm. all of this happened. What's the difference between what they did, not that they did anything wrong, and what your friend whose mother was a a social worker, you said, Mm -hmm. what do you think the difference was that made her immediately already know I should call and I should tell my mom not keep this a secret? What's the difference? So that we who are not counselors or social workers or trained can do a better job at getting people to talk to us. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing for me that I have learned about children over the years is that children know way more than you think that they know, first of all. So just always be aware that kids are a lot more... Um, aware and they're listening to things that you say, they're seeing everything that you do. And so adults typically, in my experience, tend to act a little bit awkward when the subject of sex comes up. And so if a child can sense that their parent or adults in their lives are really uncomfortable with this topic, well, they're not going to talk about it because then they get really uncomfortable with the topic. And so I think that just generally checking your own reactions before you have those conversations with kids, whatever, you know, like different people have different opinions on how um, soon to talk about kids with kids about those things. I would say I also 
the thing, talking to kids about things younger, which there's a progression, right? So there's a really great book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures Junior um, that is for preschoolers that I've had parents read to their kids. And all it talks about is, you know, if you see pictures that scare you and it talks about you might see pictures of naked people, then you go run and tell an adult. And that's it. It's a very simple book that talks about um, basically porn without talking about porn and says like the average exposure to porn with kids these days is eight years old. That's really young. So can you imagine a five-year-old stumbling upon porn someday? And then they just don't know what to do. But if you talk with them about this when they're young, they'll know, you know, go run and tell an adult, tell mom, tell dad. So that's one thing. I think just starting the conversation in very small ways early on, and that can even be simply talking with young children, preschoolers about body safety. So saying, you know, like, These are the private areas of your body. If somebody touches you in a way that you don't like, let's talk about what you do. Who do you talk to? You come and tell me. I'm your safe adult. And then we can help keep you safe. And so general things like that with young children is very helpful to start that conversation early, body safety, um, talking to parents when they feel uncomfortable with anybody in their life, um, touching them in a way they don't like or Um, showing them pictures that they don't want to see or make them feel uncomfortable. So that's Mm -hmm. definitely one way to start. And also, like I said, like make sure that your reactions are kind of tempered because children pick up on things. So it's Mm -hmm. very interesting to watch um, how how much children are just so aware. And starting from the get-go to just name things what they are. We don't need any pet names. You know, no, we don't need it to not. be weenus. We can say penis. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. Yeah, we can you say know? these words. <laughs> we can say these words and we can do it without being so hyper embarrassed that we don't, you know, oh, I'm red. I can't say these words. We can say right. vagina. It's okay. Right. That's what it's called. Yes. You know, and I think that's really um, part of the problem too, is that there's just always been some kind of a stigma around sex and sexual talking. And really, that's why they go secret. They go secret on you, Absolutely. right? Yeah, it's uh, like a taboo topic. Like, oh, we can't talk about that, right? Right. Yeah. And it's like, it. of course, it just makes it even more like, I got to go figure out what this is because it's, mm-hmm. it's all this secrecy around it. Um, what was the name of the book one more time? Do you know the author? If not, just the title. I don't know the author, but it's called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. So there is a teen version of this book that's just like Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. But the junior version is my favorite. Um, It's geared towards preschool, um, younger kids, like probably three to eight around that range. Oh, that's perfect. Okay, I love that. So openness, it starts with us being open ourselves. And then we create that environment where we can have those conversations and certainly as they come up, or even if they don't come up, we can start conversations that are age appropriate, which I don't necessarily always know what that means, because I'm sure there's a, a various schools of thought. But I really do think from the very get-go, as, as children have language or, you know, it's, they, they know their body. That's the, that's the thing. They, they need to be able to feel good about their bodies and yeah, they're curious. Kids yeah. explore. They want to know things. And and something that I consistently tell parents is, if you want your kid to come to you and and like ask you questions and believe that you're the expert on a topic, you need to be the first person talking to them about that. So if the first time they ever hear about sex is from their nine year old friend at school, that's the person they're going to start talking to about it. And if you haven't talked to them about it sooner than that, then they probably won't because they just don't 
know how to talk about weird topics with you. And so I think, like you said, starting that conversation early you know, is really important. Yeah. First teacher is the best teacher. I've I've heard that phrase before. Like you you be the first one to talk about this. And that's more likely that they'll return to you instead of, you know, necessarily listening to somebody else who's now showing them the picture books that are not right. the ones we would like them to be seeing. <laughs> okay. Totally. Okay. I love it. Um, so so tell me how as you as you coped with your own healing, probably within the study, you got very curious about neuroscience. Yes, I did. <laughs> okay. I want to hear a little bit about, first describe what that study is and what it deals with, and then a few things that really might help our listeners understand their beautiful brains <laughs> a little bit better, um, especially yeah, in, the, think- in the trauma and the healing of their traumas. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think the brain is fascinating. I still think I might go back for my PhD in neuroscience someday. I'm not quite that smart, but I would love to be that smart. Um, I, I think that the brain just has a huge capacity for healing. And that's what, that's like the thing that I've taken away from all of my, um, learning and studying on just like people with trauma and how that heals. So for me, particularly, it's interesting because I, when I was 15, told my parents, oh, I want to work with child abuse. And then uh, they immediately had a big reaction, as many parents probably would, to that remark of, oh, oh, no, I don't think you want to do that. That's too hard. That's a lot. It's too it's too emotional. And they're very supportive. Like, they also, like, are very supportive of me now doing what I do. But I think, like, 15 years old, they were probably really concerned about me. And so mm-hmm. that deterred me. So I ended up going into being a child life specialist because I, that child life specialists typically work in hospital settings. Um, and so I was going to work with kids who have trauma, but not sexual trauma. I was like, oh, I work with kids who are sick. Um, so I, I kind of changed gears for a few few years there. And then I actually was in a traumatic relationship in college. And I was in that relationship for three and a half years. And when that relationship ended, because I was being emotionally manipulated, emotionally abused, sexually manipulated, I realized, oh, all of this stuff from my childhood is affecting me now. I got into this relationship because I thought that this was normal. Like, I literally think that this really dysfunctional sexual relationship is fine because that's what I experienced as a child. And so essentially after I got out of that relationship, I went into some really deep intentional therapy. I mean, I was in group therapy. I was in individual therapy every single week for uh, a few years, um, just really pulling apart a lot of those wounds and figuring out where did my, like what happened in my brain to cause me to be in this abusive relationship. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I cannot adequately explain to you guys how vitally important therapy has been for me throughout my life. At times, it has been what keeps the 10% of my life, which is filled with challenges and trauma, from festering and becoming 20% or 30% or 50% and so on. Therapy has literally saved my life. It commits you to your own mental health And it has a physical impact on you as well. So when your mental health is good, your bodily health improves. 
I'm telling you that at BetterHelp, you have an opportunity to do the easiest pathway to a therapist. You can chat with them. You can have a video session. You can text your therapist. It's immediate. You don't have to drive anywhere, and they will match you with a licensed professional. And if that doesn't work out, it doesn't feel like a fit to you, you can change it anytime for no additional charge. It's more affordable than traditional therapy, and it's easier than traditional therapy. When you feel better mentally because you've been seeing a therapist like I have throughout my life, you'll know why you have committed that time that money, that space. So hopefully you'll go to BetterHelp, use our link, betterhelp.com forward slash my name, J-A-N, and that will help out our show. It will help you. Plus, if you sign up from our link, you get 10% off your first month. I'm telling you, it's so much more affordable than traditional therapy. And it's also so much more immediate because you can do it from the palm of your hand. I know that for a fact. I've used them myself. What I found and what I've learned along the way is the brain, the way that it makes connections. So you start at zero, you know, you're born and your brain is like making all these connections, 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 hundreds, millions of connections all the time. Over time, what happens is you stop making as many connections and you start what they call pruning connections. So your brain gets rid of it, what it doesn't need. So say you never learned to ride a bike. Well, it doesn't need those skills. And so your brain just kind of cuts that part out. Um, And so over time, as you grow and develop, um, you're constantly kind of honing your brain down into more specific, like what you particularly as a person need, depending on what part of the world you live in, what your culture is like, uh, what, you know, environments um, are around you and what your brain actually needs to survive. And so when trauma happens during these, especially early years of development in kids, um, what happens is called um, a synaptic breakage. So a moment of trauma, you have these connections in your brain that are firing. Well, trauma like cuts those connections off. And Mm. it's like, I I describe it like a a mirror shattering. So when a mirror shatters, how possible is it for you to put those pieces all back together and get the full mirror again? Very unlikely. So you have all these bits and pieces of a memory, a very difficult thing that happened to you that you can't put back together. And also what in neuroscience, what they've learned is that um, the part of your brain that controls language during a moment of trauma, it turns off. So now you don't have language to put to your memory of trauma because when it happened to you, the language center of your brain just turned off. And I think that's a way of your brain truly protecting you in some ways. Like your brain is trying to protect you and maybe block that memory out. And I think some people uh, tend to view like a blocked memory of something traumatic as bad. But for me, I'm like, you know, your brain is really smart. Your brain was really trying to protect you from something painful, um, especially as a child. So as an adult, because I'm a therapist, I mean, my goal would be to help people give them language for their story, give them language for their trauma, because that is that connection is what will heal that memory. It's it's also I want to honor the fact that as a child, your brain did try and block it out. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. So it's both and like it's okay that your brain blocked it out at the time. But now as adult. Like, let's try and process that more. So 
All of that to say like that mirror that shatters and all these pieces that are really hard to put back together, um, we call that fragmentation. That's the word for that. And then you get terms like dissociation, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with that term of your brain also to protect itself kind of leaves the body. It's like, oh, okay, we're like floating above our body because it's way too intense. Like what's happening to me right now is way too hard. And so all of that is obviously like in this moment of trauma, um, what's happening in your brain and all of these different parts are just reacting, reacting, reacting. Um, and so you, then you get events like fight, flight, freeze. We talk about that a lot, how you actually respond. For me and my story, I was a freezer. My natural response was to freeze. And so they say with the brain, when your brain freezes, that trauma and that memory actually gets stuck because you weren't able to run away from it and you weren't able to fight it. So it just, that energy in your body from that traumatic memory gets stuck there. So I've had to do in a lot of my own therapy, a lot of what we call body work, where I might have some strange pain in like my chest or my arm. And, and the therapist is like, well, what's that about? Let's be curious about it. Let's talk about where that pain comes from. And it is so interesting to me over the years, what I've found um, doing a lot of EMDR therapy, if you're familiar with that, um, mm-hmm, I am. or like just trauma therapy in general to like work through some of these body experiences where my trauma, I guess, just got stuck in these moments. And so overall, like the hope that I get from this and like the reason I love neuroscience so much is what they've found more recently is they used to say that your brain stopped making any connections kind of around the 25-year range. Oh, your brain is fully developed at 25, so you're not making any more connections. Um, You know, they say you make connections and then you start getting rid of them. And then after 25, you're not making connections anymore. But actually now they know that your your brain makes connections until the day that you die. So until the day that you die, your brain constantly has the ability to shift and to change. And that's the hope that I got from it is, oh, you know, even though I have this trauma, even though I might have this bad experience that created all of these fragmented parts, this mirror that's broken with all these pieces, and and it's hard to put those pieces back together, there is always the capacity for me to continue to move forward and heal. Because my brain is still working to heal what was broken. So that's why I love neuroscience so much. There's so much hope in it. There's so much hope in, in how the brain heals and um, yeah, getting out of that space of trauma. And I know that's true for me. I've just personally experienced a lot of healing, which I'm so grateful for. I too am very grateful for that. And I do believe that sometimes the the protection in the moment, like the shattered mirror and 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 the brain floating above your head, that is so much something I can relate to. And then when you get language later as an adult to talk about the experiences, which is why I believe in sharing stories, those that are ready yeah. and are really searching. Like a lot of people go on with their lives and they do really um, you know, they 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 function really well and they they make careers out of out of, um, they're, you know, they're, they're good. They're, they're good folks. <laughs> you know, I'm not just saying that just because you were traumatized, you're, you're a mess, but I often have found that a lot of times until we actually, at least for me, until I actually talked it out loud outside of my body, even when it was just talking to, you know, uh, my parents and not giving them all the details at that 
first initial time when I started to talk, but then that came later, you know, a little bit later in college and then much later in, in my adult life even where I could tell more details to them. And then I had a best friend that I would talk to, my sisters that I would talk to from time to time, but not a lot. I mean, I, you know, I went on, I was a very highly achieving, you know, personality. (laughs) So I almost was just like, oh, well, we just won't think about that and everything will be fine. And everything isn't fine. There is something about languaging what happened to you out loud, whether it's just to one person that believes you and supports you and loves you unconditionally which that sometimes is hard to find. You know, another reason why you have to find your tribe or your therapist or your right person, persons like like this online community, they're finding that with each other. And I love that because I think for me and, and many other trauma survivors, um, especially of sexual trauma, there's all of that stuff around it already. Talking about sex is hard enough, you know, mm-hmm. and somehow we are embarrassed and we've already decided that we're, I mean, I don't know that we decided, but you just feel shame. You just, it just comes like this happened to you. You, you, you hold all the shame, you know, who did it to you? They don't have the shame. You take it all. I don't know what that is that I would like to understand better too. Cause I still deal with that sometimes when we, we move forward in understanding how our brain has functioned and protected us and that it needs to, um, language and, and wordsmith to make those new connections, what's what's the result of that? I mean, how do we see our lives change when we even understand that and then try, attempt to do it? What's actually happening? Yeah, and I think that, like you said, talking about stories is so important. And the reason that I would, I believe that it's so important, and I think neuroscience is kind of catching up to this, is because... Um, And even like a small caveat, I remember the first time I kind of started talking in therapy, when I would talk about some of these things, I was whispering them. I remember literally whispering like, oh, I can't even say this out loud. Like you mentioned the shame. It's just like it eats you up alive um, and you it's just like so overwhelming. But I think what I've found to be true, I actually think talk therapy is beautiful and a wonderful thing, but I actually think that it would be better to walk or um, do something movement oriented while you're talking, because Mm. what's happening when you're putting language to a traumatic memory or an event, and you're having someone else do that with you and for you is it acts like a mirror. And uh, we, we call this in therapy containment. When you have all of these overwhelming sensations and emotions that are so hard to talk about as it is, but you have someone sitting across from you that can help contain all of that so that it's not just like bleeding out and um, doesn't have anywhere to go, then that is what acts as, as the healing process. And in, in the way that the brain works, um, the reason why I say I think people should be walking is because EMDR is a type of therapy, eye movement, um, desensitization, um, therapy where basically you have bilateral stimulation of your eyes while you're processing a traumatic memory. And the reason they do that is because it makes both sides of your brain fire. This also happens when you're walking. So anything that you're doing that's using both sides of of your body, um, your right and your left brain are firing at once, that creates a lot more movement 
for um, you to process because instead of just using one side of your brain, obviously, like you're using both sides of your brain and you can create better connections between the two sides because you, both sides of your brain have different functions. Um, and so what EMDR seeks to do that can also be done in other ways, it doesn't have to be just by the eye movement, um, is it, it helps stimulate the sides of your brain, both sides of your brain at the same time while you're talking about a memory. So you're not just stimulating the language around it. You're stimulating um, different parts like uh, how it actually made you feel in your body so that your body can can get that part out, not just your words. Um, and also that so you can um, so you can resolve it's they they say that once you're you have bilateral stimulation of the brain that you can resolve some of the traumatic memory by creating better connections in your brain surrounding that memory does that make sense i know that's that a does that's that's very interesting because i know you know the body keeps the score that particular yes. book and and book. having had some experiences in my body after watching episode 5 which i've already talked about on here um I, I, in the series the a friend of the family on peacock about after the fifth episode there's nine episodes mm -hmm. in the fifth episode i could barely walk the next morning. I don't know what yeah. was going on, but, the, but seeing, you know, basically four episodes in a row and I, it was like somebody had beaten me up and mm -hmm. I could barely get out of bed and walk down the stairs. And then I just, I just gave myself permission to cry a lot for no reason, or at least it seemed like no reason. It wasn't attached to anything. It was just like, I need to cry some more. And, and just, I got to go outside and just kind of try to walk my soreness and stiff muscles off. And, and it's interesting because I have two, in particular, two friends that I used to do, you know, exercise with, or we would walk or, and talk together. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I look back on those experiences and I have one currently in my life that we always are trying to get together and go on a walk and talk. And that really makes sense to me. Like we, that was therapeutic for me and I understand now why. So this is, this is interesting. I think that would be cool. Like if we could figure out a way that we can have our, you know, kind of our online friends, which we pretty much do now, if we don't live right next door to our, our dearest friends or the people that we meet in our tribe, they're, you know, across the country to maybe take your phone while you're on with somebody in your ears, you know, put your headphones on, take your phone and actually have that person be walking with you and you're both on there communicating. I like that. I love that idea. Understanding of that. That's really, really fascinating. So you said something earlier and I just want to go back to that and say, okay, you said, I knew that what I was experiencing, it wasn't normal. In association with shame, why do we immediately feel shame if, if you have a why from the brain, from the body, the body and the brain, the experience? What is that break that just, just comes back into us no matter what age we are, even if we don't even know the word shame? We don't understand it until later. And we're like, why that? Why do I have that, you know, throughout my life? Why am I still battling that? Mm -hmm. Is there a reason that you know with the brain since we're on this neuroscience path. I love this. Yeah, I think in terms of emotions, like obviously there are so many emotions, but with shame, I also kind of uh, typically like to talk to people about guilt. So guilt is 
like I did something wrong. The emotion of shame is I am wrong. Like something about you feels wrong as a person. Like you didn't do anything wrong, but you believe that you were made wrong. I think particularly with sexual abuse, um, one of the things that I've learned for myself is so as young children, what we learn, we learn about boundaries in the world by uh, model behavior from our parents, by um, experiencing like a lack of boundaries in terms of like maybe you trip over your own feet as a toddler and you fall and you hit the ground. That's a boundary. It's a very physical boundary, right? Um, so we, yeah. we learn about boundaries in all kinds of ways, but also one way we learn about boundaries is our skin. So your skin is the natural boundary between everything inside of you and the world, like what's outside. In sexual abuse, your very skin is violated or sexual trauma. And so it's it's very confusing for your brain to comprehend that this, the one thing that is supposed to be like, keep your body intact, your skin is is essentially like violated and taken away from you. And so- it's, I think it's interesting what the brain might do with that. I mean, I don't have any specific answers. I think tons of research still needs to be done about shame. Um, that's a really big topic to go into. But I think when your very skin is violated, it's easier to believe like in those moments that, oh, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me that someone could do this to me or it must be my fault. I must have deserved it um, that that this person would do this terrible thing to my like physical body. It's just so much more jarring. Um, and your brain, like we talked about earlier, is just not equipped to handle that because no one should ever be sexually violated in any way. And so your brain not knowing what to do with that kind of like fragments and, and like doesn't know how to store that memory. And so I think shame in some ways is this like floating emotion that we just don't know quite how to, how to contain. We don't know how to um, process. And so we just think there must be something wrong with us. Um, and then maybe that's how the shame develops. I think that more research should be done on shame. I find it a fascinating emotion because I also experience what you're saying, Jan, is like, I have had lots of shame in my own story and my own life. And part of why I was in an abusive relationship in college, like, oh, I must just deserve this kind of relationship. It must be normal because um, yeah, I'm just, you're there's something referring wrong. to the normal, you know, right. this must be normal. And what is right. normal, you know, when that is the backdrop? that mm-hmm. tends to keep crowding its way in is that shame. Mm-hmm. I understand guilt when I've done something wrong. Totally. I'm I'm grateful I have those, you know, I'd be a sociopath if I didn't have those. Right. Oh gosh, you know, that wasn't very nice. Or, you know, that's, that's a good thing to have that to a degree where you can, you know, course correct and you can be a better, you know, person, whether it's, you know, why did I yell at my dog? Well, don't do that. Or my child or whatever. And and learning to do those things better. But shame is a very different thing. Like you said, it's like I am wrong, not because mm-hmm. me as a thing, as an entity that uh, it isn't what I did. It's just me. And um, well, I, I do think there should be more study. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say too that I, I think that one of the things, particularly with children, and I, I'm sure this happens with adults too, is that um, your neural connections can actually get stuck in what they call ruts. 
So you can have neural mm-hmm. ruts where if something is repeated over and over and over again, it's the same as like, you know, I get up and I brush my teeth every morning. That's a great neural rut to have. I mean, I need to brush my teeth every day. So that's a pattern that your brain just starts to create and it creates a rut to do that every day. But that can also happen in a traumatic moment is your brain can create um, a neural rut that believes. So like for me, my abuse happened over four years of time. So there is a neural rut in place that said, oh, this is just how sex is. This is how sexuality is supposed to play out. This is the neural rut that got developed in my brain. So then when I do enter into this abusive relationship, it made sense. It was almost comforting in a way like, oh, this is normal because that's what my brain had a neural rut around and and truly believed was okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's interesting because I do, I do hear in that like there are things that we just, if we don't uncover the why we do them, some things are fine, like brushing your teeth, like Oh, mm-hmm. that that became this a habit or whatever a neural a neural rut. <laughs> I'm going to remember yeah. that. I like that. Okay, great. But what if your your neural rut is this geared towards pattern of yeah? Then that's not healthy, you know. And so to to re and they often I've heard that you know express like you know we rechannel them or they mm-hmm. get a rewiring new, the brain. Yeah, rewiring. And I'm like, oh, please, somebody just open that can opener, uh, you know, with your can opener at the top of my head and please rewire something. Wish it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> right? I know. And and that's and that's the thing. I think, you know, knowing that as we understand things better, you know, there's something, there's some power and knowledge, just mm-hmm. understanding why we react the way we do or why we don't have the feelings that we want to have or why that shame comes up. At least it gives us you know, something to, to work with because it's the unknown that I think is so difficult for, for us in, in any given situation. Um, I would rather know some things and then go, okay, can I work on that? Or at least it gives me a way to formulate maybe some action that I can take, you know? So that's really, really, really helpful, actually. One thing that I, I, that came up, uh, another question if you were, and and I I don't know if you're a parent yet or not, <laughs> but if if I'm you not, were, I do not have kids yet. But no. Hopefully one day. <laughs> okay, okay. So that's in in the future maybe. Um, I wonder because so much of our backgrounds, and this is various people from various you know religious backgrounds or social you know economic status and different people come from all all you know uh, child abuse or any a trauma is not, you know, saved for just one group of Mm-mm. certain kinds of people. It is everywhere and experienced on every level of, you know, whatever humanity. And is there a scientific neurological um, time when the the brain or the development of the of the child, you know, tween, teenager, young adult is actually prepared for the entire experience of sex? Or is it always just whenever it's your first time, it's going to be a little traumatic? <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> That's what, a great what is question. The science there? Because we have a lot of, you know, religious, different religions believe and teach and preach different things. And then, but I just, from a scientific standpoint, is there, is there something you could tell us there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that my experience with children is we we know that the brain doesn't fully develop till 25, but also I wouldn't say like you have to wait till 25. Like a lot of people have story I've heard stories from people who have great sexual experiences long before 25. Um mm-hmm. so I think in terms of like body maturation, like your body can be ready to have sex much sooner than probably you're emotionally capable of. Uh, I think the way that our brains develop, we need to, you know, have a lot of conversations around that. Like I said, like we live in a culture, unfortunately, where we don't have those conversations. I think that it really probably depends on the emotional maturity of the person. And if, if the person is able to have hard conversations of these are the things that um, are like to be able to speak up and say, oh, this is not good for me. This is good for me in terms of sexual development. Um, Because a lot of stories that I've also heard from people are my first time was terrible because I just didn't know how to communicate what my needs were. I didn't know anything about my body. I didn't know to say, oh, that hurts. I don't like it. Um, And so being emotionally mature enough to actually have a voice and to communicate your needs, I think is important in a sexual context. Um, I really would hesitate to put an age on that just because I think it depends on each child's development. Like even, I mean, it's wild how different um, temperament, personality, genetics, like every single human being in the world is so unique and has so many differences um, in terms of who they are as a person. And that's why we don't have an equation for one kid that has sexual trauma might develop entirely different than another kid who has sexual trauma. Like you said, some people go on to be like very successful, just move on and live their lives in such a resilient way. And there is something, something called a resiliency factor that they found in children who are Mm. truly just like very, um, they have a different capacity to heal and move forward. And not everybody has that same genetic makeup or component. And so them experiencing sexual trauma might impact them a lot more. They might have a lot more mental health issues, for example, or might fall into any number of abusive relationships or substance use or all kinds of things that we do unfortunately see following sexual trauma because it does impact people to a deep degree. But it's, it's yeah. so it's like so hard to quantify because people right. are just so different. And I, I also love that because I love everybody's uniqueness and everybody's yeah. journey is so special. Yeah, I really agree. I'm so, I, I guess I pride myself on the fact that I have such a variety of friends and people, and I love the fact that they are unique in their various beautiful colors. <laughs> and I really, really do. It's a, it's a hugely um, important thing that we that we don't necessarily pigeonhole, you know, any one person to do it like somebody else, you know, mm-hmm. or to, it, it is a really complicated, um, it is a complicated conversation for parents that, you know, sometimes um, I think, well, I think masturbation is normal. I don't think we should vilify that. I don't know what in the world, why would we do that? All we do is shame people into thinking that their bodies and that their that their natural sexual development and drives are are bad. And I, I, I don't know if I'm right or I'm wrong because I've but that's me, <laughs> you know, right. going, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I, and I wouldn't put, you know, I wouldn't put a, a young person 
you know, in a private setting interview, you know, I wouldn't have them in a confession booth or in a, in a room with an adult. I don't, I don't find that to be, you know, a very wise thing to do. And yet, you know, many places and people and of various religious backgrounds, you know, think that that's can be a really good thing. And maybe if there was abuse, maybe that child would tell if it was at home to somebody, but I don't know. I just have a lot of, I have a lot more questions now that I'm older and I've lived a lot more life than I did when I was a young mother thinking that I was really, you know, I knew what to do. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't know anything. <laughs> the know? older I get, the less that I know. That's what I've been yeah. telling people now. Like <laughs> I used to think that I knew so much and now I'm just okay with not knowing everything. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that is the beauty of our uniqueness is that our life experiences get to teach us a lot of things. And so if you can just learn a little bit of grace with yourself and the mm. fact that you don't know everything and that you're not going to do everything right. And neither are your children or your friends or your sisters or your brothers or your parents or anybody. We all are on our own trajectory of learning. Um, okay. So I love this conversation. Last question as we wrap this up. If you could, if you could um, talk to your, or maybe you do this already, if you had some advice to give your inner child, you know, if you were to say, Anna Kate, Let's talk about what it was to be eight and nine and 10 and 11 and 12 when this trauma happened. Is there anything that you could tell her that you could tell us that might have made your healing easier, sooner? Sounds to me like you, you are one of the lucky ones that it started very quickly after mm -hmm. your friend made that call to her mom. Anything that maybe would be an insight into how you would treat your little inside or say yeah. to her. I have actually thought about this a lot. I do. I write a lot of letters to my younger self. If anyone's looking for good ways to heal, that's, that's something that's been special to me over the years is just writing letters to myself. And um, oftentimes what I need to hear when I revert back to maybe a childhood state of um, like, I get triggered. I have still dissociative moments. I, have clinically diagnosed PTSD and it still affects me. And it's very frustrating because I'm like, I've done so much work. Why do these things still happen? Like, why do I still have night terrors sometimes? Um, the thing that I find helps me, two things actually are, one, telling my younger self, you are worth so much more than you believe and I'm here with you. So just like being a, a very positive adult presence to my child. Mm -hmm self. Um, and then also like continuing to have hope. Hope is a theme in my life is like, I, I tell my younger self, like continue to have hope, like life does get better. And yeah. if you just continue to have hope and continue to push forward and, um, like it, it's going to get better when you do the work, like do the work, be intentional, have hope. So those are kind of the thoughts that go through my mind when, I need, I need to talk to my younger self and, and I'm having a moment and, and that's okay. It's okay to have those moments, but it's good to, to hear that, you know, you're not alone. You can like, as an adult, I can be with my younger self and, yeah. and then I don't even have to be alone with myself. Yeah. I love that. And I am a huge supporter of what you just said. Do the work, be intentional. And the last mm -hmm. thing was have hope. Have hope. The hope part. Oh, that's the one that I believe is the biggest missing in so many people's um, 
journey is that they've lost hope. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's important. It helps you move forward, right? It does. You have to hope for something or why would you even go on, you know, go to the trouble, right? Oh, so when hope gets really, really low, when desperation or apathy starts to set in, you know, phone a friend. (laughs) That's when you need your tribe. And I am a huge proponent of like, not everybody is safe. And you know what? Not everybody has to be safe, but find the safe people for you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Me too. I, I, I really believe that. So, well, I am thrilled with this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Jam Broberg show and to help enlighten us in more, more ways than I think I could have ever expected. It really has been a wonderful hour to spend with you, Anna Kate. I really am going to get back in touch with you and see if you might come over and do a presentation or a little live event with our online community because they are open-hearted and and just looking to heal and to help others keep on that journey. And you have inspired me tonight. So thank you very much for sharing and for your big smile and your personality that just seems so open. It has been a joy. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Jan, for having me on. I have loved hearing about this community that you're building. And like we've said, like community is so important to this healing process. So I'm grateful that there are people out in the world. It takes a lot of people um, to connect each other. And so I'm glad to have met you and and we'll continue uh, getting to know you, I hope, and see where conversations lead and continuing to connect each other and people who need that support. Wonderful. Oh, that's perfect. So everybody, if you've enjoyed our conversation with Anna Kate tonight, if you could go and give us a review, it really helps us continue to grow. If you would subscribe to the podcast, that would be amazing as well. Wherever you listen to podcasts, there is a way to give a review and there is a way to subscribe. So don't don't tell me there isn't because I know there is and we really need you. <laughs> because the message that we're trying to bring to, to the one in four women and the one in six men, at least that we know of, who suffered childhood trauma in the world of sexual abuse or rape is staggering. That's a staggering number of people. So whether you're a supporter or a loved one of a survivor that's trying to thrive, or you are the survivor that is that is on your path and you're trying to figure out the answers to your healing, we really want to bring you something of value through our podcast. And um, we just appreciate your, your patronage um, support and and your reviews. So we're going to we're going to peace out now and we will see you on the flip side. But just be well. Be well, be kind to yourself. Talk to that little that little inside of you and give them hope because you as an adult really do have control to quiet the nerves of that child, that inner child. Maybe you're the one that finally gets to tell them, "It's okay. I got this. Go out and play." Everybody go out and play today. Thank you for listening. Bye. That's it for today's episode of The Jam Broberg Show. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you know anyone who would benefit from hearing our show, it would mean the world to me if you wouldn't mind sharing one of our episodes with them. If you believe in what we are doing here on the show and would be interested in becoming a patron, head over to our website at thejambrobergshow.com slash Patreon. It takes a lot to put on a show like this, and your support would be deeply appreciated. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at thejambrobergshow and my personal account at Jannie Broberg, J-A-N-I 
B-R-O-B-E-R-G. And by signing up for our newsletter over at www.thejambrobergfoundation.org. We are doing everything we can to help survivors of child abuse and their families heal and get access to resources so they can all reclaim their happy childhood. All of this can be found in our show notes. I'd like to thank our team. Senior producer, Austin Tanner. Executive producer, Chris Whiteside. Audio supervisor and editor, Eric Osborne. Co-host and trauma consultant, Dave Markell. Media supervisor, Malcolm Walker. This is Mama Jan signing off. Over and out on two. Bye-bye.